tonight I'm going to be um, uh, bringing a message out of the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you want to flip with me over to John chapter number 16, uh, verse 16 through 22 is going to be our text. So once you find your place, if you wouldn't mind standing as we read, read the word, uh, Luke, Luke, uh, John chapter 16. We just finished a study through the book of Malachi. If you were not part of that, you can go back and listen to that series uh, it was a summer series that we went through the book of Malachi, and uh, last Sunday, we, or last Wednesday, we talked about some interesting things in Malachi about the end times, and so uh, you can go back and check that out. John 16, verse 16 through 22, the Bible says, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us a little while? And ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your joy, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Father, we do rejoice with the truth of your word and the glory of Christ Jesus, our Savior, we pray that you would bless the service tonight. I pray that you would work in such a great way to bring the truths of this passage to our hearts. I pray that you would bring comfort to those that are hurting. I pray that you would bring salvation to anyone that's lost. And I pray that you would be exalted in every heart that's here tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated tonight. Horatio Spafford. Um, was a man who was a very successful lawyer, but who also faced some traumatic events in his life. Um, he was a successful lawyer in um, Chicago, in the great Chicago fire of 1871. It burned up 3.3 square miles of Chicago. It killed hundreds of people, ruined him financially. Then his four-year-old son passed away. He decided to move to Europe, so he sent his family ahead of him as he finished some business. His four daughters were on one ship, and his wife was on another ship. The ship his daughters were on was struck by a sailing ship, causing it to sink. And the telegram he received from his wife said simply these two words, saved alone. Spafford received the horrifying news that all his children were now dead. He immediately left to be with his grieving wife. The captain let Spafford know when they passed the area that his daughters had drowned. It was at that moment that he was inspired to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. 
Sometimes people say, why do you sing the old hymns? Because there's a lot of powerful truth behind a lot of these songs. But in the face of some of the most traumatic events, in the midst of the grip of grief, God stepped into the heart of this man and his faith shined through in such a powerful way that we today are benefited from that as we sing such a wonderful song, It Is Well With My Soul. Has life ever handed you some heavy news? Some, some, some tough things to hear? News that makes time seem to stand still? It's amazing how much impact that a single phone call can make on your life. Just one phone call can literally transform the rest of your life. Days that you look back on and don't know how you made it through. Events that literally change the course of your heart, your mind. Wounds that you thought, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be the same from this. Mental, emotional pains, no worldly sedative seemed to be able to affect and cause to bring peace. Just in the last two weeks, we've had four dear ladies in our church, all four of them separate brothers, all four of their brothers passed away, and I believe three of them were unexpected. My own wife's grandmother passed away this last week, and, and uh, uh, funerals this Friday, and she was 92, and what a, what a blessing. She was saved, and uh, she was so tired that last day, and she said, I just, I'm just so tired, and she laid down and just passed away. And I thought, what a wonderful way to go, amen. No six months of chemo, radiation, just laying down and passing away, and so praise God for that. John 16 is uh, given to us on the heels of really traumatic a traumatic time in the life of these men. This was a traumatizing experience that they were about to face. Their hearts would be torn to pieces, literally hours away from seeing the one who they had devoted their lives to being crucified, slaughtered as a lamb uh, in, in such a horrific way. That I don't think we can understand the level of devastation that that caused to their hearts. You you sense the feel of that with the two men on the road to Emmaus when they said, we had thought that this was the Messiah. Their hopes were so high. And, and, and to be let down after being brought so high is a, is a very difficult thing. And Jesus tells them leading up to his death in verse 16, he says, a little while and ye shall not see me. In verse 20, he gives them the double verily. This is like let me have your attention. I want you to really pay attention to what I'm saying. He says, verily, verily. That, that literally means amen. Jesus amened his messages before he preached them. Because they were that good and that true. And he says, get this. In other words, understand what I'm saying to you. Ye shall weep and lament, he says, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful. He tells them that. And as you read verse 16 down to verse 22... Seven times the phrase, a little while, is used. And I want to call those seasons in our life of suffering, little while times. And, and so tonight our message is entitled, Little While Times. First of all, what I think we see from this passage are that little while times come in life. We all face life in its difficulties. Sometimes people can uh, somewhat be naive thinking that they should be exempt from tragedy. They should be exempt from heartache. But I think just as the rain comes down on the just and the unjust, so does pain. So does trials. So does heartache. Ecclesiastes 3 
tells us that in life there are seasons. It says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away time to rend, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. And what God's telling us here is life is filled with seasons. And, and as we go through the year, one of the things I do appreciate about Ohio, and sometimes people say, oh, you know, the weather of Ohio, and they, they, they cast downcast upon that. But you know, I appreciate four seasons. Anybody else appreciate that? I thank God for that. I, I like, I don't want to, people, oh, I love to live in Florida. No, you wouldn't. Go down there in the summer. <laughs> I, was, I was in South Carolina this year, and a guy said, uh, he said, man, I retired, moved down here. I thought it was going to be wonderful. He said, it's 105 degree real field for a couple months. He said, I thought I'd come down here. I bought a boat. I was going to fish every day. He said, I could only fish till about 8.30 in the morning, and I was done. It was so blazing hot. He said, it's miserable. I said, yeah, heaven didn't come on earth for you, did it? You know, and uh, we have all these ideas. Thank God for the cool days, amen, of, a, of Ohio. It gets warm and you enjoy that. It's nice to bundle up sometimes. It causes your wife to cuddle with you. I like that. But there's spring and summer and fall and winter. And, and just like there's seasons in nature, so there are seasons in our life. You know, there's time to be born. There's a time to crawl. You begin to take their first steps. I know David Peters is experiencing that with his little 18-month-old baby. And, and uh, little Joshua, he's got a good name in him. And uh, he's... You know, these kids grow up fast, man. You blink and they're, they're, they're running. And, um, and, and then they begin to uh, go off to school and then you take them off to their first day of school and you take pictures, especially with the firstborn. You're so excited. Secondborn, you take them to school. The thirdborn, you say, hey, you're going to ride the bus. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth one, you're like, do you have to go? You know, you, you take them over there. So... Um, I was third in line. I know how that goes. You know what I'm saying? It's like, Dad, you got any pictures of me when I grew up, you know? So, uh, no, they were, they were good. But uh, then, then the kids get older, and they go off to college, and then they get married. And, and then you, who were a parent of a young child, now become the grandparent of a young child. And uh, then you begin to, one who are caring for your children, now become those who care for your elderly parents. And, and then that season begins to shift to where you begin to need care and you begin to see a lot of your friends passing away. And then you become the last patriarch or uh, the, the, the last person in your family alive. And, and uh, then your season comes to an end. And, and the Bible tells us that life is like that. It's like a season. And death is a part of that season, a part of that process. And, and when you go to the Bible, you find that you find that the people of the Bible were not exempt from real tragedy. I mean, Adam and Eve... I think about the tragedy that the first family faced. You know, they, they really lost two sons in one day. You know, one died, but the other became a fugitive, right? I mean, he, had a, he was a marked man, and um, just the, the heartache and the pain and the suffering of, of, of the mom and dad there. Abraham, his travels, trials, family struggles were intense. Um, you think about Isaac, his older brother wanted to, um, his older son, I should say, wanted to kill his younger son, Jacob. Uh, his father-in-law was a crook. He worked for her for 20 plus years. Uh, Genesis 35, in one chapter in Jacob's life, his wife dies, his son commits a great sin against him, and his 
father dies. Uh, Hannah felt the pain of being barren for the majority of her life. Naomi's husband died. Her two sons died. She returned home to Bethlehem. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which meant full. Call me Mara because my life is bitter and it means empty. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness leading the Israelites. And at time, Moses said, just take my life, Lord. <laughs> David had both great victories in life, but also great defeats. He felt the pain of losing a child and also having a child who wanted to kill him and take his throne. And, and Hebrews speaks of Old Testament saints who, Hebrews 11.36 says, and others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, that's... Specifically, it could be speaking of Isaiah, who was cut in half, who were tempted, who were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens of the caves and in earth. I mean, these are the most godly people, and their life was filled with trauma, trials, tragedy. Sometimes we think that, and maybe it's the Americanized system that we live in. Maybe it's the air condition. Maybe it's the cushioned chairs that we, we've come accustomed to. But we, we think that our lives should be exempt from the heartache and pain sometimes. And when they come, we seem to be shaken in our faith. Second Corinthians 11, Paul says of his own life, he speaks about the beatings he took for Christ, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the, 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 the hurting, the cold, the suffering that he went through all for the sake of the church and for the work of the ministry. The early church was martyred. But the, the truth is, great trials and hardships come. Uh, you could be the best person in town. You could be the most faithful Christian in the church. And you may have the life that has most experienced the Job-like processes of life. The, the Job trials. So little wild times come, friends. And secondly, little wild times, many times, are very hard to understand. It's hard to get your mind around them. Um, your theology may seem fixed until you get hit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, when, when things seem really well and things are going well, you seem like you're not shaken. But I can tell you what, you can, you can be shaken. You, you may have the strongest faith in the country and you can be shaken. And if you don't think you can be shaken, I, I can tell you, you have a shaken coming. <laughs> I mean, God can humble any one of us. We have to realize if there's anything in me that's solid, it's Christ in me. Because on my own, I don't have that stability. I don't have that power. And so, here you look what they do in verse 17 when he says, A little while, I'm going to see me a little while. You shall not see me. I go to the Father. Verse 17. Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us a little while, and you shall not see me? And again, a little while, and you shall see me because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. They were struggling to get it. And here the disciples are struggling to understand what Jesus means by saying a little while. What does he mean with this little while statement? You can sense their nervous questions, the struggle of understanding this. And what you find is Jesus had some sense of an intimidating presence because they were afraid to ask him often a question. You ever read that in the New Testament? They feared to ask him, you know. Um, Jesus always gave him answers, but I think that he had such a I mean, this is, this is Almighty God in human flesh, right? Um, this, is, this is the glory of God in, 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 in a human body. And, but just because you're saved doesn't mean you have all the answers. The disciples had some questions, and sometimes the Lord will allow us to be in a state of questions without clear answers on purpose. 
Sometimes God wants us to have questions that we don't have the answers for, for the purpose of trusting God. Did Job have all the answers? No. He said, I wish that God could come down and speak. And finally, God did. And he says, you want me to speak? You stand up and be a man, Job. And Job says, I will put my hand over my mouth. I spoke of things which I knew not. I've spoken once. I will not speak again. (laughs) And God asks him about 120 questions to which Job couldn't answer one of them. Job didn't have all the answers up front. Abraham didn't have all. Did Abraham know where the promised land was going to be? (laughs) somehow Sarah followed him says you got directions he says I have God Moses didn't have all the answers leading the people in the wilderness what a stressful process you know out of all the men in the Bible I think man boy I wouldn't have wanted to be Moses right but all these men trusted God and where sight was not available faith was And so God leaves us with questions for the purpose of saying, God, I will trust you to fill in the gap for which I don't have an answer right now. That's what it means to walk by faith. God doesn't always give us the sight. Lord, if that's you, bid me come unto you. Come. Well, how can I walk on water? Just come. There's a whole lot of answers in Questions that were not even asked or understood yet, but Peter got out of the boat. When life hurts bad enough, we will, it'll make you ask a question. When, when, when the temperature's up that high, it begins to, to turn up the... Because when we feel the infliction of pain, it's, an, it's a response in us that says, what did I do to deserve this? Why the suffering? Why the pain? We just cry out, God, I don't understand. I mean, we're like Martha and Mary who said, Lord, if you had been here, why, where were you at? Four days ago, we had sent someone. I know many of you have been in those situations. Times we try to make sense of pain. Times we cannot reconcile the level of pain we are enduring with our lives. Maybe you have some questions today. Maybe your heart's heavy with questions that you can't seem to answer. Life can hurt really bad sometimes. The pain can be so intense. And if you love people, you hurt much in life. If you choose to love, you choose to hurt. And sometimes people get hurt by something, they just pull away from everything. And that's not good because then other problems begin to come. First of all, they are no longer ministering to anybody. They're ministering to themselves because they value their own safety more than the needs of those around them. They value their own comfort more than the needs of other people. The disciples asked, what does this mean? Job didn't understand. David didn't eat for a week when his child was sick and ended up dying. In a few hours, the disciples would be weeping. Luke 24, the men on the road to Emmaus were overwhelmed with sorrow. So little wild times come. Little wild times, secondly, are very hard to understand sometimes. You just Just know that's a reality. And if you're a young person today, and maybe there's some young people in our church who face some great trials, but maybe you're here today and you've not really faced some heavy situations, just know that you're going to need this message down the road. You will need it. And I, I pray that life treats you very graciously. But I can tell you this, if you carry the Bible when you're young, it will carry you when you're old. It is what sustains. It is what holds people up. 
I've been at the bedside of many people who died in their 20s. I've buried many teenagers. I've seen such sorrowful things in life. And, And so thirdly here, we find in verse 19, Jesus knows we struggle to understand little wild times in life. Look what he says in verse 19. Now Jesus, what's the next word in verse 19? Yeah, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? You know, Jesus could have made it so clear that they would have known, but he wants to give it in such a way that they dig in to seek the answer. Sometimes God leaves us with questions so that we seek the answers. And he he wants to know, do they really want the answer? Do they even want it? Sometimes I ask questions to people, and I could give them the answer, but I want to see if they really want the answer. And sometimes I won't even, there's been times I've not even given people answers because I, I didn't sense they wanted it enough. But I'm just going to leave them until they want the answer enough. I'll leave them in a state of emptiness or a state of struggle until they realize, hey, I need the truth. And so Jesus knew they had questions they wanted to ask, but perhaps were afraid to ask or didn't know how to ask. So Jesus brings it up to them. Jesus knows that we have questions and struggles to understand what little wild times mean in life. Uh, your struggles do not go unnoticed by God. That's, that's an essential thing for us. He is not unaware or unconcerned. And people say, well, why hasn't he done anything yet? Let me ask you, has he done anything about our struggles? Has he... Has he done anything about the trials of our life? What struggles do we have that Jesus did not face? And I believe our Lord is so compassionate and sympathetic and caring that it just that we find that here in, 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 in the gospel records. Uh, you can hold your place here in John 16. Flip over to Matthew 26 and uh, just want to read a couple of verses there. Matthew chapter number 26. Just by way of context, Matthew 26 is hours away from Christ's death. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John were coming apart with Jesus to pray. Jesus walks off in the garden by himself. According to the Bible, he's so overwhelmed with grief, he's so consumed with grief and sorrow, the bitter cup that he had to drink that night, and the impact of it just begins to crash down upon him in Matthew 26. Verse 36 says this, then cometh Jesus with them, Matthew 26, 36, into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, This is an incredible statement. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. The word sorrowful... The word is, is, is a word of speaking of tremendous grief. Six days before this, in John 12, 27, Jesus made this statement. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, before this cause came I unto this hour. Isaiah 53, 3 says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Uh, sung that song Sunday, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a good song. And it says he was very heavy. It's a, it's a Greek word that is, in, in the Greek there's, strength, there's three words that could speak of 
being overwhelmed with grief. This is the strongest of the three. It's a verb that means to have tremendous distress, tremendous anguish and grief. It's, it's, it's literally a deadly kind of grief. Uh, I don't think anybody in this room has touched this kind of grief in our lives. Um, because verse 38 says, he was sorrowful unto death. The agony was literally taking his life. The inward distress was causing his body to break down. A normal person could not have survived what he was going through. Verse 39, this is where the inward sorrow can be no longer held in. It says in verse uh, Luke twenty-two forty-one, it says he went about a stone's cast away and he fell on his face. Luke 22, verse 43 tells us there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. And, and some theologians believe that if the angel didn't come and strengthen him, that he physically would have died. Luke twenty-two forty-four says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. The agony is so overwhelming, it causes a phenomenon known as hematidrosis, where you begin to perspire blood. Even Leonardo da Vinci describes a soldier who began to sweat blood before a battle, and he also wrote about a man who was sweating blood when he was given an unexpected death sentence. And, and the reason that he was under such turmoil was not because of the physical pain, it was it was a spiritual reality that he was taking the bitter cup, the sin that you and I have committed on himself in the garden, being, being the sacrificial lamb in our place, just an incredible... And you know, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper this Sunday. We need, to, we need to rest upon that truth. The glory of Christ for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. If you choose to reject Christ, you accept the wrath of God. To say no to Christ who took our wrath is to say, Christ, I reject you and I'll take God's wrath myself. And so that night, Jesus was under such anguish, such turmoil of heart and soul, blood was pouring from him. And all he could do, and this is, just, this is so humbling to me, I've never gotten over this as I've studied through the Gospel of John is he faced the sin of the world, he faced the bitter cup, he faced Judas betraying him, he faced the other eleven leaving him. And all he could do from chapter 12 to the end of his life on the cross was care about his disciples. I remember studying through this for years and in, in, in spending a couple years in John just thinking, God, how could you not for one moment just think about yourself? John 12, 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. In John 13, a couple hours before his passing, in John 16, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, but he's not focused on himself in John 13. Instead, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. John 13, 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world, he knew what was coming, and he chose to wash their feet. I mean, you would think he's, you know... Guys, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. Could you, guys, could you guys take care of me tonight? Could you guys wash my feet? Could you guys minister to me? All you could do is think about them. In John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again and receive you on myself, that where I am there you may be also. He says in verse 16, I will send a comforter, he will teach you. Verse 27, he says, I will leave my peace with you. In John 15, he says, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Verse 18, 13 verses, 
from, from chapter 15, verse 18, through chapter 16, verse 3, 13 verses, Jesus speaks to them of the trials, the difficulties, and the hardships that they will face in the world, and how he's not going to leave them alone, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be their comforter. In John 17, the entire chapter is Jesus praying for his disciples. John 18, he's arrested, and then he goes off to his death. And so we find here, in Jesus' most difficult time, most sorrowful and heavy time of his life, grief that would kill the average person, all he could do was care for his disciples. That's the kind of God that we serve. All night, all Jesus had asked the disciples to do was to watch and pray with him. It's the only thing he asked them to do. And all they could do was sleep. And in the night that he asked them to watch and pray, that they would not be led into temptation, all they could do is sleep. So little wild times come. Sometimes we don't understand them. But I can tell you, God understands them. And He cares. There's no ounce of pain and suffering that you as a Christian face that God is not aware of and deeply concerned with. And in conclusion, and fourth thought I just want to give you tonight is, Jesus will take our little wild times of sorrow and turn them into a forever joy. He says in verse 16, a little while and ye shall not see me, but praise God it doesn't end there. <laughs> he says again, a little while and ye shall see me. Now theologians agree on the first little while, when Jesus says a little while, ye shall not see me, this referring to his death just hours away. But they do not agree on the second, a little while and ye shall see me. What does he mean in verse 16? What is this? Some say it was his resurrection, others say it was his second coming. I believe there are three aspects to this. When he says, you will see me. Initially, I believe it was at his resurrection. The death of Christ, is its tragedy brought the hearts of the disciples to an incredible depth of despair. But when he rose again three days later, their hearts were filled with just an unimaginable joy. I mean, just such an elated joy. And he, and he tells them in verse 22, he says in Ye now therefore have sorrow, he says, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. It's literally a, a joy that no one can take is what I would call a transcendent joy. It is a joy that is not based on circumstance. Do you understand how powerful that is? Can you imagine having a joy not based on circumstance? Like, no matter what the circumstance, you remain with joy. An unending joy. And, and, and here's how that works, is because our joy is not based upon circumstantial situations. Our joy is based on who? Yeah, Christ. He says, because of me, I'm going to give you a joy. I'm going to give you a peace and a joy that the world cannot understand and cannot receive. They don't get it. They pill up, they drink up, they drug up because they don't, they don't have me. And so he's telling them there is a joy that is beyond what you can even comprehend. I mean, that's why they're in prison cells singing. Who does that? Nobody's ever done that in the history of the world. Nobody ever gets in prison and sings, but they did in the Bible. Secondly, I believe this also has the aspect of uh, the joy that, that God gave, not only at his resurrection, but the joy that he gave them through the Holy Spirit. Jesus was with them after his resurrection for 40 days. Then he left them for 10 days. 
And then he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. To have the Holy Spirit in your life is to have Christ in you. In Romans 8 verse 9, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And, and the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit gives us something. Galatians 5, 22, let's read this verse together if you would. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And it continues to go on. What's interesting is there is a definite article that precedes that whole list of fruits of the Spirit. What that means is not isolated gifts that He gives you. It's a bouquet. He gives you all of them at once. When you walk in the Spirit, you get love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, self-control. You get all of that. But if you don't walk in the Spirit, you walk in the flesh, guess what you don't have? You don't have others' love. You have self-love. You don't have joy. You don't have peace. You're not long-suffering. You're not patient with people. Romans 14, 7, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Romans 15, 13, Now the God of hope, that's so good, the God of hope, fill you. You want to know somebody who is no, that doesn't want to live anymore? Show me a person that has no hope and purpose. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So, so the, the gift of the Holy Spirit that he sent them gave them a joy that was just supernatural. Uh, and then the third aspect of this is his future return. He said, I go to prepare a place, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The joy of the New Testament was the future return of Christ. They knew that heaven was not on earth. I think we get that confused sometimes because we like building sandcastles, but they understood it. I mean, life was that bad for them. It was that hard for them that they didn't, they, they looked forward to heaven. They longed for Christ's return. I think one of the most sad things is when somebody says, you know, I'm, I'm, it kind of scares me thinking about the Lord's return. I'm like, scares you? <laughs> the only people who should scare is those who are not saved. If you're saved, that is our future joy and hope. Well, what a blissful thought that the Lord would have come back. Yeah, but my kids are still young. Praise God, I'd rather have them with Jesus than here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'd like to experience, you know, Mogan, I'm sure tonight he's like, Lord, come back in like, like Monday, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that out loud, but I just did. But he's like, you know, she's like, come back, hasten, Lord. No, I'm teasing. No, no, no. I'm so excited for those guys. They're, so, they're both so excited. But we... Um, you know, we, we, we sometimes get so, think, so excited about something on earth and, and think that that's where the joy is, but, but we have no concept of what true joy is on this side of heaven if we experience what is on that side of heaven. And so the comfort Paul gave the people in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, he, he tells them, he says, listen, you don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that, that Christ died, those who he who are dead in Christ, he's going to bring with him. He says, he says, for Christ will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, so the dead in Christ, it says, God will bring with him. 
God's going to bring them with him, our loved ones. You know, every time you have a loved one die, it makes heaven a little sweeter, doesn't it? You, just, you, just, you, you, you look forward. That's our home, folks. I mean, we're, we're pilgrims on this side of heaven. Our citizenship, according to the Bible, is in heaven. Isn't that great? You're a citizen of heaven. And guess what? There's no earthly governor, president, or political force that could ever remove your citizenship from heaven. Is that good news? Taxes are good in heaven. Hey, health care is real good in heaven. You needed that hip replacement? Done! You know? Amen? Heaven's going to be good, isn't it, John? Damn, it's going to be good, man. It's going to be good. And some of us have, have faced dear loved ones who, some, some parents who've lost children, some people who've lost children in, in childbirth, and others who've had miscarriages. And Boy, heaven's going to be wonderful. And, and, and so Jesus says, you know what, I'm, I'm giving you a joy. And he says, I, and, and he's telling them all of this. He's telling them the promise of, I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to come and receive you into myself, that where I am there you can be also. Like I'm, he's telling us that so that we can trust that and, and, and put our hope there. Like attach it there. The, the problem is people attach God's goodness based on temporary circumstances, and God says, base it on eternal joy in me. Now, Jesus told the disciples here in John 16, listen, you will be sorrowful. Your hearts will break. And he's telling them, listen, Friday you will mourn. You're, you're going you're gonna to weep. You're going to mourn. You're going you're gonna to be, be overwhelmed with that. But the good news is Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. I'm going to heaven to the Father, I'll send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Though I'm in heaven, I'm coming again. And what you see here is in this like triple layer reality is that it's like I'm going to give you joy at the resurrection, I'm going to give you joy in the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to give you joy at my second coming. I'm going to give you joy now, I'm going to give you joy in 50 days from now, and I'm going to give you a future joy that you can look forward to. If there's one word that defines heaven, it's interesting when you study the Bible, the one word that defines heaven is joy. Unending unceasing and uninterrupted joy. Isn't that going to be good? Like, how's your day? I'm filled with joy. You say, well, how can you experience joy if you don't have sorrow? Oh, we've experienced sorrow, and it's this side of heaven, isn't it? And, and, and I believe that there's going to be... People say, you know, people in heaven don't know what's going on on earth. They don't remember any of that. Really? Is that what you think? Because the people who stood before Jesus says, Lord, when on earth did we see you? When did... In, the, in, in, in Lazarus... And, and the rich man, the rich man remembered his life on earth. And, 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 and what did Abraham say? They're going to come from the east and west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, right? And also you see the souls under the altar saying, Lord, how long, just and true, till you avenge our blood upon those who killed us on the earth, according to Revelation, I believe it's chapter 18. They knew what happened to them on earth. That was painful. And they knew that God's judgment had not yet come to those on earth. Also, there's joy in heaven over what? One sinner that repents. And so celebration is going on all the time. Isn't it amazing to think that heaven rejoiced the day you got saved? If you're not saved, heaven would abrupt with joy over your salvation. That's the value of Christ saving your soul. It's an amazing thing. And so Jesus gives the example here in verse 21. He says, a woman when she is in travail has sorrow. <laughs> I always remember my wife, I think it was on her third daughter. I didn't realize how hard, strong her grip strength was until that day. I'm being dead honest with you. 
much. I literally thought I'm going to have like a carpal tunnel or something, you know, my hand will be ruined. And uh, I said, honey, I said, you got this. Just be tough. And you want me to be tough? You know, she just, she's so sweet. And she crushed my hand. I said, can I have an epidural right here? Can you just stick that bad boy right here? You know, he's right in the back of my arm. I'll hang on, baby. I'll hang on. I'm not sure what's going to happen with my hand after this. Amen. But, uh, you know, a woman who's, who's in that place, they understand the pain of but let me ask you a question. When a woman's going in to have a child, are they so focused on the pain of the childbirth or are they focused on the joy of that child that's coming? You know what, they're, they're consumed with that child. You know what a woman said? I, I, all I can think of is a man, I'd be like, man, I'd be dreading that. And I'd be just like, man. Women don't think like that. They're, they're like, boy, I just, I can't wait to have this baby. I, I'm so ready to have this baby. I'm like, I'd be like, give me a few more days. <laughs> just, <laughs> oh, it's coming. You know what I mean? Oh, man, we'd be a mess, wouldn't we, guys? Yes, we would. And there's always that guy, oh, I just I wouldn't have a problem with that. Well, you're special. <laughs> give him an extra T-shirt after church, you know. But friends, our life... Just like a mother who has that child, she goes through suffering. She, and sometimes it could be 15, 20 hours of just intense, agonizing. I mean, what, what woman, if you didn't tell them what was going to happen, you're like, okay, ma'am, what we're going to do, you're going to end up, and they had no idea what pregnancy was. What we're going to do, you're going to have, um, you're going to gain at minimum 25 to 30 pounds over the next nine months. You're going to have a belly on you like this. Look like a basketball on the front of your stomach. Your back's going to hurt. You'll get sick perhaps every day for months. You will, you will not feel good. You will, you will get sick. You will have all these, I mean, just all this stuff. Your husband will not understand. He will say insensitive things to you. <laughs> yeah. Can you bring me the tea? Can you, you know, so... She's like, I, well, I would not do that. What would, what would I do that for? And he says, would you do it for a baby? And she would say, yep. You said, would you do it for a husband? She'd say, nope. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but she would do that for a baby. You know why? Because of the love for that child. And so, in the same sense, Jesus is saying, just as that mother has sorrow, there's sorrow for a time, but, but don't focus on the sorrow. Don't focus on that pain. That's not, where, that's not where our focus, you see where the focus has to be? You see that? And he, and he brings it into a real-life application in a present-day situation and saying, a, a mother doesn't, doesn't focus on that, though that's a reality, that's a real pain. That's not her focus. Her focus is on the delivery. Her focus is on the child. And so let us, let us focus our eyes upon Christ and the, and the reality of heaven. It's not about the present pain, it's the future glory. And if we understood by experience the magnitude of the glories of heaven, we would mentally be lifted off in daydreaming world. You understand, if we saw heaven for a day, we could not stop daydreaming. We'd wake up and be like, I dreamed about it again. You ever had like a dream where like the rapture happened or you're in heaven for a time and you're like, is this it? You know, I mean, and then you get woken up, you know, your daughter knocks on the door or something or somebody, and you're like, ah, you know, go away. I want to go back to the dream. You know, it's so awesome. And, uh, but, but the, the joy of, of, of seeing that would just be so overwhelming. I think we would be, if we saw heaven and knew what it was and, and felt the experience and saw all of that, we would, we would embrace the aging process. 
We'd be like, Lord, let this come. Let the white hair come. Let the body go. Let the, let the teeth, you know, well, like stay in there as long as they can. But let, you know, let this process take place. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He saw death as better. He said in Romans 8.18, and, and I believe Paul saw heaven based on, based on the book of Corinthians. He says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and 18, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen is eternal. I think about even Christ in Hebrews 12, verse 1. He says, Wherefore, seeing also we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run the race with patience. It's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And, and this is interesting. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You see where Christ's eyes were fixed? It was not fixed at the pain of the cross. It was fixed at the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He despised his shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Three things being heavenly minded will do. God's goodness won't be based on the temporary but on the eternal. Secondly, the issues, pains, and sorrows of life will not be our focus. The glory of heaven will be. Death is not the end, it's just the beginning. And also, we won't put all of our eggs in the basket of earth. <laughs> and in conclusion, folks, little while times come. Jesus says they'll come. Pain's real. Sometimes it's hard to understand them. In our trials and struggles to understand it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care. He does and He has done more for us than we would even realize in that suffering. One day our little while times of sorrow will be turned into an eternal weight of glory. Jesus said, no one can take that joy away. It's going, to be, it's going to be unending. And so tonight, whatever my lot, He has taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Amen. Let's all stand this evening. Maybe you're here tonight and maybe you're going through a challenge in life. I would encourage you, just to, maybe you just need to come and pray at an altar or maybe at your seat, but just take some time and say, God, help me to, help me to get through this season. Find your strength in Christ. There is a transcendent joy that is offered to God's people. When we focus on the trials, boy, it can hurt. But when we focus on the joy that is before us, it just lifts that. If you're here tonight and you don't know if you were to stand before God, and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? If you say, I don't know what I would say to that. I'm going to be right down front. We'll have men and women down front. I would love to have someone talk to you tonight and show you from the Word of God how you can be saved, how you can know when your life's over, you'll be in heaven. You know the Bible says you can know when life's over, you'll be saved. You can know that for sure. Wouldn't that be great? If you're here tonight and you don't know that answer, boy, I'd love to have you come. Father, we do thank you tonight for your Word. We pray that the truth of this text would be implanted into our heart. Verily, verily, I say unto you, it's what you said to us. Thank you that you told us about little wild times. Thank you that you give us understanding. Thank you that when we don't understand, we can trust you when that gap is there of our understanding and light of our present pain. And thank you that you will turn our pain into a forever joy. We rejoice in Christ. You are our hope.
bring salvation to anyone tonight that doesn't know you. We ask it in Jesus' name.